Hey everybody, this is episode 118 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas for this intro. I'm excited to give a preamble for my episode 118 guest, Sasha Golish. Sasha is a Canadian elite level athlete who just ran a 232 marathon in Houston. Also has a 407 1500 to her name as well as a slew of other amazing results including a 5k PR of 1524 and has competed at the world half championships was the top Canadian there last year has competed at the world cross championships and so has huge range from impressive track PRs 202 800 all the way up to now a 232 marathon so if that weren't impressive enough she's also just a great human trains with the Wazelle hot volley her coach is brad hudson who also coaches ali Kiefer, and she just happens to be in austin and so i was able to get her in person for the podcast on kind of a funny story basically Sasha actually knows Alex Hutchinson and was listening to my episode 110 with Alex and Christy Ashwanden on the book Good to Go. She happened to be reading the book at the same time and was fascinated by the discussion we had on float pods and their validity on that episode. So after I had secured her to come on the show, she sent me a message. She said, hey, let's go try this float pod thing. And so that's what we did. And so we're going to go, we're going to, we went and we're going to talk about it to kick off my interview with her. And so you get all of the interesting and crazy details of our separate flow pod experiences. So we'll have that more in a second. We also talk a lot about a whole range of topics with her from training topics to mental training, to coaching, to her current what she's learned about from her current dissertation that might apply to running and coaching. And it's, I think a really fascinating discussion and Sasha has an infectious spirit. I've had the opportunity to run with her several times here in Austin during her time here. And she's just a fun human. And I think that infectious spirit comes through in the interview. So you'll get to meet Sasha and be a fan of hers. Her ultimate goal is to make the Olympic marathon team for Canada for 2020 in Tokyo. So we'll talk about that as well. Incidentally, this interview happened before the recent Olympic standards came out. So we'll talk a little bit about Canadian, the Canadian process to choose an Olympic team, which is a little bit convoluted. And now, those higher standards are now thrown in the mix for her, which I'll kind of talk a little bit about her reactions to that at the end of this episode, so you'll have to wait for that. Before we jump into my interview with Sasha, though, I wanted to cover off on a couple of current events, the first being the New York City half, which is always a big springtime half. Always a big prep race for many who are doing spring marathons, especially Boston, and this year was no exception. The race now runs point-to-point point from Brooklyn, starting in Prospect Park, to Central Park, where it finishes 
at essentially the same spot that the marathon finishes at the New York City Marathon that is and this year was no exception the the fields in in good conditions ran pretty fast as far as this race goes we'll start with a quick discussion on the men's side where we had a big half marathon debut from U.S. the the top U.S. 5K runner in the last several years, Paul Chalimo. Paul finished third in just over an hour and two minutes for his half debut. And again, this is a hilly, challenging course that doesn't have pacemakers, so it's usually got a little bit of a tactical element to it. Interestingly, the first place athlete in this race was an athlete who was not in the elite field, an elite level athlete, but who was not in the elite field, a guy named Belay Telahun from Ethiopia actually won the race from the open field. He started just behind the elite runners, had a bib in the numbered in the numbers one thousand plus, and ultimately was able to stalk up his way through the field and win this, making a move at the very end to beat the Eritrean athlete Daniel Mesfun at the very end in what was a fairly tight race for the podium to Lahun ran a 102.10 Mesfun ran a 102.16 and Paul Chalimo ran a 102.19 and it seemed like Paul may have been trying to come back at the end maybe starting his kick a little bit late to try to at least catch that second spot but it just didn't happen this race the, set, the tone was set actually early on by the Americans in this field, Paul Trelimo and Parker Stenson up front in the first couple of miles. And then Daniel Mesfun, who ended up second, who has a, a 101 half PR, ended up taking control at about the 5K point, kind of driving this thing from there, leading by about eight seconds over Trelimo at the halfway point. And then as that was happening, this guy Tillahoon came up from the 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 open field, ultimately got on Chalimo's shoulder, then worked his way up to Mesfun's shoulder, and then in the final two K of this race pulled away for the win in what I think you could call is a pretty shocking result for a guy who had bib eleven sixty three and not bibs five and three and seven like the other three of the top four in this race the americans overall had good results jared ward ended up fourth in a 102.33 so he was just off the podium noah Drotti, who we've talked about before on this show was fifth in 102.39 rogan austin the u.s marathon champ who also won the road to gold event in atlanta that we just talked about on the special edition episode he was in sixth in 102.41 Tim Ritchie, 7th, Parker Stenson, ninth, Ben True, who actually won last year's race, ended up in 10th, and so not a good result there for Ben True, but I would say really impressive results from those top Americans. If you look at Chalimo, again, this was his half debut on a course that doesn't really set itself up well for a track athlete, con- considering this is a pretty challenging, hilly rolling course throughout especially well especially on the front side and on the back side once you get into central park so to have him do so well in a 102 low 
in this kind of race really bodes well. His his coach Scott Simmons said he was basically using this as a strength building opportunity for Chalimo to build towards what he wants to be a double at the World Championships on the track in Doha. Chalimo is looking to move up to the 10K on the track as well and try to double in the 5K and 10K there. But you've also got some some hints from Chalimo that he's potentially looking to the marathon sooner rather than later, which I think would be a really, really big deal for U.S. marathoning if Chalimo were to move up. He would be somebody who I think could definitely give Rupp potentially a run for his money at that distance, depending on how that plays out for him. So that'll be interesting to watch, but this, I think, is a good result for Chalimo and bodes well for that strength building that will give him an opportunity to do that double in Doha. Jared Ward, fourth place here, 102.33. He's gearing up for Boston, and I think this result bodes really, really well for that. You know, typically, I don't like to put a lot of stock in what a half marathon before a marathon says about the marathon potential there because when you're built, when you're training for a, a, a marathon, that half buildup race isn't always the best indicator for what you can do on race day in the marathon, or at least you have to discount it a little bit. And in this case, to, for him to be able to get fourth, compete well, finish 102 mid in a t- on a tough hilly course, I think bodes very well for Jared, Jared Ward's form. Going into Boston, especially because prior to New York, his last marathon, he was having some injury issues and didn't go into that race on top form, but still performed well there. So I think that means that, you know, as I'm looking at it, Jared Ward would be potentially that favorite for the top U.S. spot, at least in Boston, and is somebody, depending on the tactics in Boston, who could mix it up with the best that will be there. So we'll see how that field shapes up as we get towards Boston, but that but that tells me that the Jared's in a good spot. Interesting that he beat Brogan Austin here. Brogan Austin beat him at the Road to Gold event. My guess is that Brogan Austin wasn't happy with this result to get six, especially after coming off a couple of wins at the U.S. Marathon Champs and at the event in Atlanta. But still, sixth place in an event like this, only a few seconds out of top five, still bodes well for the build that Brogan is putting together as he builds towards Atlanta next year. So I'm encouraged by these results for the Americans especially across the board for different reasons. And and if you use that as a segue for the women's race, then... There's some encouraging results for Americans there as well. We've got the winner on this in this race was was Joycelyn Jipkowski, who's the half marathon world record holder. No surprise that she took charge of this race pretty early on, about the 10k point, and just took off from everybody else. Ended up beating beating the second place athlete Mary. Ninjugu by over a minute, or actually right at a minute. So Jipkowski ended up 110.07. Again, she's the half marathon world record holder. No surprise that she could do that. Her countrywoman, Mary Ninjugu, finished 111.07 right behind. And then Buze Dariba from Ethiopia 
was right there in a very, very close match between second and third. More importantly, perhaps for the Americans, Emma Bates, Des Linden were right there near the podium, finishing in 111.13 for Emma Bates and 111.22 for Linden to get fourth and fifth. Now, some people say, well, that's not that exciting. Well, if you actually look at this race from last year, the winner of last year's race was Buse Dariba. She ended up third on this day, but got first last year in a 112.23. And so to have this race where you've got Emma Bates, Des Linden, both under 112 in the low 111s, off of a slow start, I think really bodes well for both of those athletes, especially Lyndon in her prep for Boston. She said that this race was different for her in the past. She's done this race as a prep race where you're, she's really treating it more like a long tempo, p- potentially really trying to dial into marathon pace versus use it as a race effort. If you look at her result last year, she ran a 113 and change to you know to finish in i believe top top 10 but but still two minutes slower than what she ran this year this year she's 111 and change and was mixing it up trying to cover some moves a part of the chase back behind jepkowski for a while and so to see that kind of racing from des and this kind of time on this course with a slow start i think bodes really well for Boston and I think means that you know she's she said and she said it she said I'm practicing with this race I'm practicing gear shifting I'm practicing trying to cover moves and not just dial into my rhythm where you know Des is that's her trademark really is the metronome being able to dial into a specific rhythm and then sort of stay there and stay consistent there and anytime the paces have shifted off of that rhythm she usually lets the pace go and that doesn't bode well for racing especially at these top marathons in today's world so this was her opportunity to practice that gear shifting and she would say after that you know that it seemed like she had success with that and not just in staying in the mix but also in feeling like she could recover after putting out a harder effort for 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 given you know, forgiven chunks of it. So that bodes well for what she's going to do in Boston. And I think also gives us a window into what we can expect for her in Boston in that perhaps she'll be more willing to, to go with the leaders when they do shift those gears. She said about this race in her post-race interview, she says, I don't think I've ever had a performance in New York that was as good as this in terms of just really competing and engaging. I probably got over my head a few times and then recovered just fine. I was able to cover some things, fall back, regroup, remain in contact after that. That's what racing is all about. Really good practice and a good positive step for the last couple of weeks heading into Boston. So so there you go. A different posture from Des as it relates to her race tactics. And I think that's going to make it fun to see what she does in Boston as she defends her titles coming up here in just three weeks time. So... So there you go. That's the uh, quick update on New York City Half. The other thing that we need to talk about today, actually, in lieu of this special edition episode that I just released where I talked about the Olympic standards, the 
the site letsrun.com, which is one that we follow closely, reached out to USATF and asked them them some questions about the impact of those new IAAF Olympi- Olympic qualifying procedures on how the USATF, the U.S. Track and Field Association, will choose teams for the Olympics next year. And they got back some somewhat disturbing news from the managing director of communications, Susan Hazard, who basically said the following. She said USATF was aware of the proposed standard changes and made recommendations to the IAAF during the process. While we are disappointed in this initial announcement, we will enthusiastically advocate for additional changes that serve in the best interests of our sport. For the U.S., the three highest placing finishers at the U.S. 2020 Olympic trials and who have the 2020 Olympic Games qualifying standard will select themselves for the U.S. team. So, basically, they talked about only the Olympic qualifying standards and not the paired Olympic ranking system that would also allow people to qualify for the Olympics. So, everybody's up in arms this week after that statement from USATF wondering if they'll simply go by the time standards and not also allow athletes to make the team who are high enough in those IAAF rankings for their event. And if that were the case, then it could potentially cause some extremely anticlimactic results in the Olympic trials where you might have athletes well down the finishing results in the Olympic trials make the team because they happen to have the standard versus other athletes who may not have the standard quite yet but who have enough ranking points to make the team and if they get top three might still be excluded if the USATF is only again looking at those qualifying standard times so it's all very confusing all very convoluted and has everybody up in arms about what might happen as a result of the U.S. Olympic trials, both for the marathon and for the track trials, which will be in June. My take on it to this point is that it's it's still too early to tell how exactly this is going to play out. My, my hypothesis based on that statement from USATF is that somebody was speaking out of turn that maybe they haven't... F- that we didn't get full information in that statement that they haven't fully considered all scenarios yet because it just doesn't seem possible that they would exclude this big part of the process for choosing the Olympic team, which is this ranking system that the IAAF specifically introduced in order to give certain athletes a chance of making the team, even if they don't have the qualifying standards. So, would seem odd that the USATF would decide to just overlook that and simply look at qualifying standards plus a top three result at the trials. But who knows? And at this point, I think everybody's operating in the gray and, and we're still waiting to get really clear black and white definitive statements from the USATF as well as from the IAAF about how the ranking system will play out. And it's all very strange and crazy that this is happening just a little over a year from the 2020 Tokyo Games when athletes are already in the process of choosing races especially the marathon athletes they're already in the process of having to choose races 
three and four and five and six months out or nine months out that might impact their potential ability to make it on an Olympic team. And so who knows? It's all very frustrating. I tweeted at some point this week that, hey, I guess the IAAF and the USATF just doesn't want people to follow the sport because they keep making it so difficult for fans to figure out what is happening and how to root for people. And this just adds another layer of confusion. And so it's frustrating. I tend to believe that, as I mentioned in the special edition episode, that it's going to work out okay, that that via my optimism, somehow justice will prevail through all of this. And, and the t- governing bodies will be able to figure out it, figure it out in a way that doesn't cost a top three athlete a spot on the Olympics at the U.S. trials. But as as of this point, we don't know. We will have to see. So there you go. That's my intro. A couple of current events there and at least an update on the Olympic standards as it relates to U.S. athletes. Now let's jump to my interview with Sasha. Welcome, Sasha, to the show. How are you doing today, Sasha? <laughs> I'm pretty relaxed right now. Super Thanks relaxed, right? <laughs> Super relaxed. <laughs> so part of what we talked about in the intro, and, and this was really your idea because you're reading Good to Go with my episode 110 guest, Christy Eschwanden. Alex Hutchinson, incidentally, was also on that show who you happen to know being from Toronto and you guys run together. Yep. And so... You listen to that podcast, you read the book, Good to Go, you're like, hey, <laughs> let's go try this floating thing because you're in Austin doing some training. And I'm like, that's kind of a creepy request, <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> I've never done it, so let's give it a shot, right? <laughs> and sure enough, today, before we came okay. here, that's exactly where we came from. We went and did a float session. No, first we ate barbecue. Well, we ate barbecue because you haven't had yet your Texas barbecue. Then we did a float session. May or may not be advised. (laughs) Advised. But we haven't talked about it because we intentionally wanted to save it for the podcast and hopefully give some insight for those that listened to that episode and wondered what the hell this float stuff was all about. (laughs) And so now we get to talk about it. So first reactions from the float session. Okay, my first reaction was towards the end. Oh my gosh, my face is so dry. I can't relax anymore. Hmm. <laughs> How did I get so much salt on my face without submerging my face? Yeah. So, did you ever relax? Totally. So, that actually went by so fast. Really? Yeah. So, I... Take, take me through that. So, and just to give people context. So, the, the pods that we used had this music intro that went on for, what? Ten minutes. Ten no, minutes. Fi- 10, 10 or 15, 15 minutes. minutes. Yeah. So you got in there. You shut the hatch. You the, could the, leave the hatch open. You could leave it open if you wanted to. The pods were about eight feet long by five or six feet wide. Yeah. So plenty big for our tiny little runner bodies. And about five feet high, just so that people don't feel like they're yeah. totally closed in. Right. And they had a hatch. You shut the hatch. There was a light on, sort of a subtle, I don't know, it seemed like... It, it changed, right? Yeah. It, it had different hues. But anyway, it's kind of a subtle light coming from the back. And this music that eventually went off and they went to darkness. So did you, were you able to relax right away? How did it, how did it kind of go for you? Give me the play-by-play. So I, okay, so I love yoga and I like practicing on my own. Um, and I don't often go to classes. So I 
try and kind of trick myself. So unclench your jaw. Don't let your tongue stick to the top of your mouth. Um, and then I started thinking about the music. So think about the drums and sort of get into a, a mind state where you're following the drums. And so um, I actually let the music play the whole time. And then I did a gratitude practice for every joint in my body. Wow. And somewhere around between my knees and my pelvis, I went into this state. And I don't know how long I was in it for, but I came out of it and I was like, I wonder how much time is left. And probably about five minutes later, the music came on when I was sort of continuing my gratitude practice for the rest of my body. And I was like, okay, that was the coolest meditative experience I've ever had. Wow. Yeah. So you rocked it as a rookie (laughs) pod person. I I mean, I feel like I feel like I should have gotten instructions from you before I got in there because that I did not get into that state. Now, I didn't have a bad experience. Right. But I was not in a super meditative state. Okay, so let's come back to that. So what was your experience like? Okay, so (laughs) so first first for me, I had to get over the fact I did a trail race on Sunday. Had some chafing I wasn't aware aware of in you know the no. nether regions that instantly you know <laughs> hitting the salt just kind of got me right. So the first <laughs> five to ten minutes I was focusing on that as the nerve endings finally sort of you're constantly stu- now stuff yeah stop flaring and so that was my, my initial experience was just like oh wow I chafed in a place I didn't realize and the salt you know has that effect that it kind of stings so anyway so that was my initial thing and then it was like okay now i just need to relax i just tried to focus on my breathing do deep breaths i was having a little trouble initially getting comfortable in a position same my neck didn't want to relax i did use the they give you this kind of blue floating halo thing to try to serve as a neck rest of sorts in the water i did use that and i found it helpful but it wasn't until I realized, hey, I'm just going to put my hands behind my head and sort of like I was laying on a hammock, just kind of relaxed that way that I was able to subtly support my neck in a way that w- allowed me to get comfortable. And so it probably took me you know, 10 minutes of chafing, screaming, <laughs> 10 minutes of sort of fighting with my positioning to to figure out what's going to work to kind of get my neck to relax. And then... And by the way, I turned the music and the and the the lights off early because they were kind of bothering me. And I thought, well, let's just see if I can do this without any sound. After that, I didn't get into a super relaxed state, but I will say I was relaxed and I was kind of enjoying being by myself, alone to my thoughts. I was present in that I wasn't thinking about other things. And I just kind of had fun with it. I would say the biggest benefit I got was the fact that I was able to sort of, I figured out that I could move around in there and do some hip mobilization work. (laughs) So my right hip has been tight since the race I did and it's kind of been bothering me a little bit. So I was literally like, as I was floating in this zero (laughs) gravity state during like hip mobility work, which allowed me to get to some range of motion places that I couldn't have got if I was, (laughs) you know, subject to gravity. So I was doing that. There was a, a bit where I was pushing myself back and forth ac- <laughs> across the... <laughs> like a baby. Like a baby. You know, with inside the pod, I would kind of float to one side and then push myself <laughs> to the other side. And I would count how many of those that I did. Just so all of you out there listening, Chris is reenacting this right yeah, now so as he's I'm talking like, about yeah. it. So I was doing that. And then at some point I would stretch out and I would touch 
<laughs> my hands and feet to the top and you know front and back of the pod to kind of extend and stretch out. So I was just kind of having fun with it, doing <laughs> things that were relaxing. But I, you know, I, I wasn't in this deep meditative state. I wish I'd thought about the gratitude concept because that would have probably helped me get to a better place. But I didn't get to a bad place. It was just not super meditative. Okay. So on that thought, do you think if they had cued you and offered you like access to calm or headspace that you would have been able to maybe find that place? Like to me, that's one of the missing things if you're going into this sensory deprivation place and you don't know what you're supposed to do. Right. I mean, even simple cues of every time a thought comes into your head, try and push it out so that you can stay present. Don't think about what you need to do when you get out of the pod. Right. Right. Sure. Yeah, that would have been helpful if you had talked to me about, hey, <laughs> go through each body part and have gratitude <laughs> for it. Then I might have gotten to a better place. But I also don't know if that would have worked for me. Right. Because I can't go back now and do it. So at the end of the day, I guess I would say it wasn't a bad experience for me. It was relaxing in a way. My hip feels great. Awesome. <laughs> which is awesome. Your cuts are clean. <laughs> right. <laughs> The Epsom salt also has to have some sort of benefit that will extend beyond that experience. So it was a good experience, not, but I'm not sure I would do it again. I, I, at least my initial reaction would be I'm, I would rather take a 60-minute nap in my own bed yep. with, with the lights out and the dark shades on yep. than go pay, I think it's 80 bucks a session after your first there for an hour. What do you think? So I liked it. I'm with you. I don't know that I'd pay for it again. I mean, I definitely like napping, although I'm a 20-minute nap fan. Um, but I kind of think, like, Christy, like, I love massage. And I think I'd rather put my money towards mm, massage yeah. before I put my money towards that again. I mean, I definitely think there's some benefits, you know. Back to her book, it's what works for you and gets you into um, a relaxed state. Although, like, having said that, as you said, like, I won, <laughs> I won the game of getting into that meditative you state. You did win. But... And I've never been there before. So, you know, is that a greater benefit? Don't know. I'll have to reflect on that. I, I must say, though, as we talk about it, though, now I'm curious. Yeah. Like, what if I did go back and I treated the experience differently? Plus, I had the knowledge that I have now, which is that, hey, if I put my hands behind my head, I can, like, allow, allow my neck to relax. Right. Now, now I know enough about the experience where there's not so much new being thrown at me. Right. That... It's too stimulating in a sense yeah. that first time. But then you go back and you're like, okay, I know all the pieces. Now I just go into that mode. And now that I have some tips from the expert here <laughs> on pod floating, then maybe I could do better next time. So well, I'm kind of curious about that now. Or maybe just go buy some Epsom salts at your local grocery store and get in your bath. <laughs> and turn off the lights. Sure. And make sure none of your kids are home so it's quiet. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know, maybe, maybe our next, you know, <laughs> challenge, you know, maybe a guided meditated class would be just as beneficial for you or yes. anyone. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I've done a yoga pranayama class, okay. breathing class. That's what was focused on meditation. And I will say that was a mind blowing experience Okay. because it taught me ways to turn my brain off through breathing exercises that I've never really experienced and I walked away thinking holy crap like that was 
legit and I need to do it again. I haven't. Okay. But I came away, I guess, more strongly affiliated with that approach than I would say with the float pods. Okay. It did seem also just very odd, right? Right. We're sitting here in a strip mall in North Austin, (laughs) inside this pod, inside this salon of sorts with an oasis room waiting area that had coloring books and journals and magazines and books and how not to be a jerk. (laughs) And the whole thing, it was just odd. I'm, I'm here paying, you know, it was 60 bucks for our first session. That's a hundred Canadian dollars for everyone who's wondering. So much more expensive in Canada. <laughs> so it it was just odd. It was it did sort of remind me of the conclusion from Christie's book, which is sort of like, why are we paying for all this recovery stuff when we can just sleep well, eat well, and appropriately balance stress and rest in our exercise and get similar benefits? Right. I mean, I don't think that floating is going to have an aggregate different result compared to some of the other recovery stuff that I do. Um, Going down that mind trip, though, for sure I'm going to try some other meditation stuff to get back to that. That was, I mean, a couple days from now, I'm sure I'll reflect back and be like, yeah, that was worth it. But can I recreate that? In your bed. Right. When you you get back to your bed. (laughs) (laughs) Or in any other dark room or, you know, there's, I don't know about you, but there's certain trails that I've gone running on where you get into this, you know, flow state where it is almost meditative, where you're not thinking about anything else about except your footfalls, your arm movement, the trees around you. And there's something really restorative and relaxing about that too. Yep. It was interesting. Well worth the experience. Thank you for pushing me to do it. (laughs) Sorry for being creepy. And it's good. It's good (laughs) podcast fodder for sure. (laughs) Because now we've done it and I'm sure Alex will want to hear all about it. Oh, I'm going to make Alex come with me in Toronto. So I guess I will be going again. Yeah, you'll have to. Yeah, I got to get Alex You'll have to find a free one for him. (laughs) Okay. I want to segue there to the book you just read. Good to go. Yep. Obviously, we we hashed the float pod <laughs> piece of that. What are your other takeaways from the book? Oh, I mean, just like you've said, the biggest takeaway is figure out what makes you relax and do that. I mean, although I'm going to quote Alex's book, that is, if, if you do that, but you don't sleep well and you don't eat well, is there any point in doing that one little thing that puts you into a relaxing state? Yep. I mean, like... I love sleeping. I said that on our run this morning. I mean, like, one of my favorite things to do is I think you sleep. said you were a professional sleeper. Uh, maybe. If that was, if I remember right. Yeah, something to that effect. I've worked on it really hard. Like, I've definitely perfected what I need to do to sleep. And I swear by it. And I'll give up lots of other things in my life to make sure I get that sleep. And then, you know, like, I, I'm at the point in my life where I just crave good food. Like, I don't anymore crave junk food. I, I crave good food. Texas barbecue. That's, you know, we got some protein, some salt. We had some <laughs> vegetables. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't either. All probably really good ingredients, too, I would imagine. Yeah, and some cream soda. A little bit of sugar and hydration. Perfect. So, talk about sleep. If you're a professional sleeper, why are you good at it? What do you do to optimize your sleep habits? Because I suck at it, I have to be honest. (laughs) So it's a priority in my life. Um, And I think making it a priority sort of sets the stage that if it's, you're going to make sure you get that good sleep. And then it's putting my phone away at night. Um, I have terrible teeth, thanks Austin Powers. So 
you know, my, my toothbrushing routine, taking um, the few vitamins that I take, um, and crawling into bed with a good book and getting, and fiction, I should say, to get your mind to go into that relaxative state so that you can go to bed and get into that dream state quickly. What is green state? Dream. 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 Not green. Unlike blue really? light. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not green light. Just wanted to make sure I wasn't yeah. missing something there. No. So you just simply have a routine down. Yeah. And I love to read. So at one point I moved home and my brother and sister were there and there were not enough televisions for everybody. And I got into reading and I haven't looked back. You said fiction, though. Is that better for the evening for you? Um, so Dr. Greg Wells in Toronto, he's... I can't remember. He does a lot of research on this. Um, the challenge with nonfiction books is if they get you thinking about things that you want to improve in your life or at work, you start thinking about those things and you think about needing to do them. And so you actually introduce stress into your life as opposed to relaxation. Where fiction, you're not really thinking about how that book is going to change your life. Um, you're thinking about the story. And so you're more likely to dream about a story than you are something changing your life or your work. I like to use mindless television. Blue light. <laughs> but then you're telling me about the blue light. That's going to kill me. What if I had blue light glasses watching mindless television? Would I be able to accomplish the same thing? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not the researcher. I'm not the expert. Maybe. I mean, again, if it puts you into a state that's relaxing, then probably it's fine. So on a related point, one of the things... I saw somewhere, I don't know if it was on your blog or maybe your, your Twitter feed, you were talking about body awareness and knowing when to back off, when to walk home from a run, when to stop, when something isn't right. And you said earlier today when we were running that you're OCD. <laughs> yeah. And as an elite athlete who's training professionally and trying to compete at the highest level, there's got to be a little bit of a type A personality in there too. Totally. And so with that as a formula, it's hard to back off. It's hard to make those decisions. And I think that's a true, that's true for a lot of us, but recovery in a lot of ways is also about making those decisions. So as someone who's OCD and type A, how did you get to that place where you could make those decisions? So I stole this from someone, and I don't know who it was or who to give credit to, but you treat that recovery as a workout. And so when you shift your mindset to it's just as important as the hard work that you're doing, and you actually put it in your training journal, that was the shift for me to really get me to do it. Walking back from the run is the workout? <laughs> Sometimes walking <laughs> back from the run is the workout. Because that's, that's what I needed. So I could have run home for five minutes um, and probably lost weeks. Or I could have walked home and I think I took a day off and was good to go two days later. But I put that in my journal, in my training journal. Walked home. And then you can kind of track the injury as you're going. And then it doesn't, you're not dismissing how important that was. And I think when we don't put that in our journals, we dismiss that it was important what we did. So you're OCD about those good decisions now, in effect, right? Yep. I mean, my hamstring, we've been running together for a couple of days. It's been bothering me. Um, and it's not painful. It's been tight. And it's now at a point where it's not painful and not tight. And there's a series of exercises and different things I do and, and routines that I find that help me. And I write them in my journal every day. And I'll even plan out which ones I want to do. And I like back to the float, I was actually curious to see how my hamstring would feel in the float, if it would feel like tight, if it was relaxing. 
Um, and it was a non-thought, which I think is also a good thing. Yep. Yeah, my hip felt great as I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were stretching it. <laughs> so, but th- that's a hard thing to to do. Now, for me, as I said, I'm terrible at getting enough sleep. But after reading Christy's book, it sort of was a punch in the face on some of her science there to, about how impaired you can be without really yeah. realizing it. Like, holy crap, like, this isn't good. No, it's and scary. I and, I, and I don't know how bad it is because I adapt. Right. And so it has made me more sensitive to recognizing those moments when I'm just worn out and I need to take a nap. And for me, fortunately, I have a little bit of a flexible schedule. Yep. And so if it's 12 on a Tuesday and I'm sort of, my eyes are getting heavy writing emails in the <laughs> middle of the day, I would in the past just power through that because it was, in my head, it was a sign of weakness or something to go to sleep or to somehow bend to that fatigue. But now I'm sort of realizing, okay, that's a sign that I'm too tired go take a 30 minute, 40 minute nap and then get back to work. And by the way, you're going to get the same amount of work done because now you're more productive and alert when you get back to it. And so I've been doing that for the last month or so. And it's resulted in probably an extra nap a week for me. Okay. And it's, it's a game changer, but it, it is, it's that mindset shift from this is something that's, weakness or bad or a sign that I don't have my shit together to this is what I need to perform not just as an athlete but also as someone who's trying to do productive things in this world anyone needs to sleep so I actually ordered the the I don't know what's called the mindful morning journal I was it's I'm gonna take a picture and send it to you later but um days one through seven you write when you plan to go to bed and when you plan to get up and the first five things you plan to do in the morning. And then you write down when you actually went to bed and when you actually got up. And I think it's that tracking. And as athletes, when we track things, um, we want to track our progress. And we want to get better. And so by tracking your sleep, you can, you can go win the sleep war now. <laughs> it's like I won the, the float pod. Well, we think, and mostly we think about tracking as tracking the quote-unquote work. Mm-hmm. But it's all work. All of it is. Right? I mean, when you're sleeping, your body's working in its best form to recover. Totally. Well, and some of the greatest discoveries in this world are made, were made, you know, just as people woke up and just as people fell asleep, but in this, like, relaxed, reflective state. And um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. So in my PhD life, I often get criticized because I'm running a lot. But I often on those runs am thinking about... um, how I'm going to develop my project and where it's going to go. And a lot of my great ideas came from that moment. Had I been sitting at a desk and working in quotations, as people say, I probably wouldn't have had those breakthroughs with where my project went. Movement taps into creativity. And relaxation taps into creativity. When I was in college, I I remember taking a stats class and we would have problem sets that were really hard yeah. and a friend of mine was also in that class and so we would do them together and when we would get stumped we would stop get up and throw the football okay in the hallway in the dorm and talk about sometimes random things but also sometimes the problem 
and then we would figure it out. Yeah. Because we were doing something different and we were moving. And so that was an aha moment for me on this, this idea that movement helps you access ideas for whatever reason. I'm sure there's science behind it that I don't understand. The science, so I'm reading a book on that right now on metacognition is this focus and diffused learning. And it's a little bit about how you can put so much stuff at the front of your brain and access it. But to really get it, to learn it, and to really understand it, and to work through those hard problems, you need the diffused learning, which is sort of that fumbling and that that frustration to get through. And those aha moments as you've gone through, they're, they make it all worthwhile. Most people listening are runners already and have figured this out. But that's this is why I get frustrated when people tell me they can't run or they don't have time to run. Or that even you know if they are someone who's active, that finds little windows where they, they feel like they can't get it in. Right. It's to me, it's the horse and you can never put the cart before the horse. You've got you've got to get that activity in in order to not only access the ideas, but de-stress. Yeah. Do all the other things to create balance that will allow you to do whatever thing you are prioritizing or think is important to the best of your ability. But you've got to put some of these things first. And oftentimes, and I think it's a lot of this is an American thing. I don't know how it is in Canada, but Americans feel guilty about spending time on things that aren't work. And it's kind of ridiculous. It is. And it's unfortunate because I think you can still, you can actually still be really productive and probably, I should say, more productive if you actually take that 20 minutes, step away from your desk. Even if you just go climb the stairs at work. Um, if you can throw something on, go out for, you know, like a 20 minute run. I mean, that it's going to change your life, both at work and your mental health and your physical health. So I want to switch gears for a second because people are probably wondering who the hell is this Sasha person? <laughs> We've given some of your stats already <laughs> in the intro. Clearly you're running badass. I think what's interesting about your story is that you were obviously a runner early in life, but then took a break from it had a sort of quote-unquote real life, and then came back to it later. So talk about that evolution for you. Okay, so I ran in college. We call them universities in Canada. So I ran till second year in college um, and got sort of typical really injured. I had three stress fractures. Um, it was back when New Balance had these shoes with this post. So probably not an eating issue and just too many miles and too many stiff shoes. Um, and, but more importantly, I hated running, and I just fell out of love with it so I left um actually switched and entered engineering got an engineering job out of school um did that for I guess 10 years uh, partway through it started playing ultimate frisbee as like an evenings thing got me out uh it was more about going to the bar and having a beer after probably <laughs> than the exercise uh but a lot of fun uh bought a road bike in there got into it and then partway uh had friends who just said they missed me and came back back to it um, and as I got better, I actually had my boss say to me and my mom, who's one of the hardest working people I've ever met, so you have to quit and go pursue this because, like, this is it. This is the only window to do it. What was the age gap there? 22 to 32, I think? No, probably 21 to 32, so okay. 11 years. 11 years. And then you started doing it, and then... It was real terrible coming back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Talk about that. Oh. How long did it take before you thought, oh, okay, I can do this again? Probably, I mean, it sounds short now, but six months. But six months in it is really hard. I mean, the first 
like month or so longer than that at practice like first I wasn't finishing workouts and then like I was so far out the back that I was so embarrassed I mean I was a high school you know standout in my city with the same track club and I couldn't even finish workouts but um my friends stood by me the whole time we laughed we giggled and I was you know I craved the workouts and then quickly I went from back of the pack middle of the pack to front of the pack to running with the boys (laughs) and then we started giggling (laughs) How did you stay in it through that? I mean, I've been there where you're coming back from a big injury and you've got to restart and everything hurts and everything's harder than you think it was. And you think you're never going to get back to where you were. You're never going to feel like things are easy again. How do you, how did you stay engaged? Cause obviously it's worked out now. It's easy to look back on it, but in the moment. Community. I mean, it was two girls, Sarah Katz and Jillian, she's now McKay, but Tweety who just, every day at pra- like before practice like can't wait to see you can't wait to run with you can't wait to hang out and it makes it not about the workout and about your friends and so it makes you crave coming back but it was hard it was you know it was embarrassing but they didn't make it about that one of the tenants you talk about on your website is play yeah was that a big part of it yeah i mean those workouts weren't i mean they were hard but it was definitely play like we again we had so much fun i mean um, to be out the back and see your friends doing well is really awesome. And, you know, I'm, I think, I hope, well, maybe unique in celebrating other people's successes and watching them get faster and have breakthroughs and set PRs. And, you know, Sarah Katz is 40. And, at, you know, at the time she was like 35 and running like 206. Like it was just, it was incredible to watch what she was doing. And so for me, it was play to watch what she was doing. And so, yeah, I had to suffer <laughs> to play with her, but so what? and when did you decide to quit your job and how hard was that decision the decision was really hard I had this job that I absolutely loved I worked with amazing people so that spring as I was coming back to track I started running 1500s again and I went from running 428 to 424 I went over to Europe and I ran 413 and I in Europe my mom called me and was like you have to quit your job and I was like who who am I speaking to (laughs) because you told me I could never quit a job without another job and I was like I'll think about it. I'm flying home. And then I flew home and watched movies the whole time because that's what you do. And when I walked into the office, it was my boss who'd been following what I was doing who said, like, you have to quit. You'll always have a job here. And so it made the decision really easy to know that I always have a job to go back to, um, have this education that I'll always be able to work. And that I knew I only had this shorter window, you know, coming back at 32, 33 to be able to do this. But you go from making money to not making money. I mean, that's got to be a big part of it, right? True I mean, how did you story. play that out? You're like, well, it's kind of nice to have a salary and I'm hmm, not sure how this is going to work with that one. So how did that part of the decision play out? Um, you just adjust your life. I mean, you don't go out and eat food as much. You don't go on as many vacations. Um, you don't go shopping for clothes. Uh, you know, my parents were really kind and generous and said I could move home with them if I didn't want to pay rent. Um, the guy I was dating at the time, we actually decided to move in together and I don't pay rent there. And, um, he really does pay for all my food. I eat a lot of food. I always find that out when I'm traveling. Um, and I kind of had my savings and, uh, I did do a GoFundMe uh, back then. And I've actually managed to stretch that amount of money that I still actually have some of it left in there. So people supported you. People supported me. People really supported me. And now you've been back for five years. Yep. You had fairly quick success getting to the Pan Am Games after a year. 
Yep. Moving from 1,500 <laughs> up to now you're a marathoner, having just completed the Houston Marathon last month. Yep. Two months. It's a, not last month. It's the one before that. It's March oh, now. That's right. It's, it is March. Yeah. Man, time flies. Doesn't feel like it outside here. <laughs> right. So how has that evolution been for you? Well, it's funny. So in the process of coming back to track, I think what kept it fun was I was like, okay, I'm coming back. I've always wanted to run a marathon. Um, you know, my coach Ross was like, Ross, let's go run a marathon, but not this year. Let's do it in like four years. So it was always a target. Um, and even when I was training for the Pan Am Games, it was a target um, to eventually get there. You're a 407, 1500 meter runner, 1524, 5K runner. Now a 232 marathoner. Which one of those was the hardest? Oh my gosh, the marathon by <laughs> far. <laughs> For sure. Is it even close? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the 5,000 on the track, and I haven't run a 10,000 yet, but, you know, 5,000 on the track is fast, and, like, you're sprinting around the track for, you know, 15-odd minutes. And you have to see that finish line 12 times before you get to stop. There's yeah. something mentally challenging about that. How would you compare those two races, the 5K and the marathon? Um, Are there any similarities in your mind? Oh, yeah. The last 800 meters of both of them are, like, <laughs> the worst thing that you can go through. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah it's true yeah i remember someone yelling at me with like 400 meters to go at houston like you can do it pick it up i was like pick it up <laughs> like how about just let me get there yeah yeah your houston pictures at the end were awesome <laughs> you're sort of barely balancing on your knees as after you cross the line my legs <laughs> so yeah we and we've talked about it on this podcast before the 5k in some ways is very similar both physically and mentally to the marathon obviously they're very sh different distances but yeah. but the mental things you go through in the, in that smaller 15 minute window seem to also play out in the marathon in different ways sure it's like a, a here's geek it's like a wave graph and so the peaks of the wave <laughs> on the 5000 are just much sharper yeah you know it's the marathon they set in much or a much slower rate but i think by the end it's it's an equal amount of bad word to use but suffering it's discomfort it's an equal amount of discomfort but the marathon clearly hasn't come easy to you you tried to make your debut in berlin last year did not finish ended up in the hospital beautiful beautiful hospital yeah. <laughs> not the trip you expected <laughs> <No>. afterwards <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? What, how, talk about that experience. What happened? What did you learn from it? Um, yeah, it was an experience. That's for sure. I mean, nobody gets on an airplane. It's like, I'm going to go run a marathon, but instead of finishing, I'm going to go to the hospital and check out their system. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, just so all of you know, it's very inexpensive to go to the hospital in Europe. I had insurance, but still so inexpensive. Um, it was really hard on my heart and my head. It really played with me. It really made me question what I was doing, why I was doing it, why I wanted to run the marathon. Um, I don't really know what happened. Um, I don't know that I need an answer either. I know that my legs collapsed underneath me. I mean, there's theories. Um, definitely wasn't dehydration because uh, when they pumped me fluid in the hospital, I peed before the end of the first bag. So not dehydration. Um, the theory is that I didn't train on roads that were firm enough going in and I think given that I didn't run consistently for 12 years that's probably what happened and it just 
You know, it felt like someone took a billy club to my legs <laughs> slowly over the race. And by the time I collapsed, it felt like someone had <laughs> beaten the crap out of my legs. Yeah. What's hot? When was that? <laughs> when did you collapse? Well, so I know exactly when it happened. It was 31.04 kilometers <laughs> since the lovely German woman came over and turned my garment off so that I could have <laughs> accurate data. <laughs> That's hilarious that she actually said that. You told me that yesterday yeah. when we were running, that she said, we've got to stop the garment. <laughs> you you do the accent better. Do, say, <laughs> repeat what she told you. Oh, we must stop the garment for the accurate data. <laughs> that's yeah. nuts. I would think that you might think about that, but a spectator? So it made me laugh, though, and I think, I think at the end of the day, she might be what saved me, you know, to make me laugh in that moment when it, I, all I wanted to do was cry. So much tragedy. So much work. Um, and she made me laugh. And all of the people around me were so kind and so generous and so fantastic that I think that really helped get me over what had just happened. But you said you thought about quitting at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, who doesn't, right? I mean, epic failure. Um, awesome sports psychologist that said, you don't quit after your biggest successes or your biggest failures. You quit when you're level-headed and you can make sound decisions. That's good advice. It's good advice. <laughs> I think you also tweeted something to the effect of, I am not a failure. This was a failed attempt <laughs> yeah. at the marathon. So yep. separating failure as an identity from failure as just something that happened. Yeah. Um, and it comes from we're not defined by our successes or, your, or our failures. And I think the same thing applies to success. But... You know, it, it was just a failed attempt. No one can take all the great training that I did. It was one bad day. And so you take your moment and you take your moment of this sucks and you kind of let it fester for 24 hours and then you figure out how to move through it. You said it might have been that you weren't ready for the pounding of 26.2 miles, which could be true. Right. But at the end of the day, who really knows? And there's no way to really know at this point. Right. And sometimes that happens that, you know, I've had an athlete recently raced a marathon in December who had a, s a similar experience. She finished, but at a time that was significantly slower that she wanted. And at the end of the day, we looked at all the variables and we said, you know what? Who knows? Like it was a shitty day. And so what, right? Like, do you still love running? It's do you hard still to love say so what, but yes. In but the yes. moment. Yeah, in the yeah. moment. But yes, for sure. It's a thing that happened. Right. Moved past it. Yeah. And go run Houston. <laughs> yep. <laughs> did you have PTSD approaching the 30K point in Houston? So I did, um, but I got so cold that all I was focusing on was this like batch of sunshine ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and then this really funny moment happened where this guy that I was running with was like, oh, oh I have to go to the bathroom. I was like, oh my God, I'm at 32K. I passed that point. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a distraction that was welcome. It was a welcome to distraction. I mean, I was freezing, absolutely freezing. So I don't know that I welcomed that distraction, but sure. At that point <laughs> on the course, you're heading back to the east on the Houston course. Sure. So I you're don't heading know. back towards downtown and you probably had a little bit of a headwind at that point and... Freezing. <laughs> and you're freezing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't look at the maps, right? Like, are you really going to memorize 26.2 miles? No. So like... <laughs> I had no idea where I was in the course until I could running. see the finish line. And I was like, it's so far. How did your splits play out in Houston? Oh, gosh, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I know I had a really bad section either between 25 and 30 or 30 and 35 where I was just, I honestly was so cold. I thought my skin was going to shatter. <laughs> so 
It was it was the dark section, like yeah. not me- mentally, like actually physically under the trees, dark. Yep. That section was bad. But you got through it and things. I could see the sunshine. Yeah. The sunshine, <laughs> figuratively and literally. <laughs> literally, literally, I can see the sun. Did you do anything different getting ready for Houston versus Berlin? Sure. I failed at a lot of workouts. I had a <laughs> lot of missed runs. Um, changed my training. Hired Brad Hudson to help me along. Um, and went in with a really different attitude. What changes were there? Uh, one, I just need to finish a marathon across the finish line. <laughs> I don't care about the time. I mean, everybody asked me, what are you aiming for time-wise? And I was like, the finish line. I'm <laughs> aiming for the finish line. I just want to cross the finish you want line. The, the P, the pass. So P, I never yeah. have to do this again if I choose to. <laughs> um, yeah. But what did he change? Did he give you different workouts? I mean, were, was the mileage different? Was, what was different? The mileage was about the same. I think the, the difference was... was for Berlin, I worked with Ross and I coached myself a lot. I mean, I have a coaching background, um, but at the end of the day, I didn't trust myself. And it's nice to just kind of put your hands in with someone else and understand why you're doing the workouts if you're that kind of person, which I am. Um, but have somebody else dictate what you're doing, but with specific feedback that you give them. But you said you missed workouts oh, yeah. <laughs> and runs. Yeah. And then you had an amazing day in Houston. Yeah. Which is also funny, right? It's like oftentimes when we have those perfect blocks... Sometimes we have the shitty days and then we have when we have those training blocks that aren't perfect, somehow magic happens on race day. And I think it's letting go. So, I, I mean, I, I have great friends back home and my friend Brittany just said I was texting with her and she's like, no one's going to ask you what you did on December 8th at the start line in Houston. So just <laughs> let your run today go. I was like, great, moving on. OK, time <laughs> for some coffee and a donut. <laughs> so what do, you, what do you pick up from Brad? What do you what are his core principles if there are any um definitely mileage but i think that's any marathon training coach if you're going to train an elite um a lot more hill sprints in my days um a lot more sort of like little sprint sessions at the the end of um some runs some in the middle just more about priming yourself for the bigger workout um and then like big workouts being big blocks of really uncomfortable work Longer, uncomfortable work. Longer, uncomfortable work. Like, Do you do stuff like that in long runs with him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of like progression runs, lots of stuff at marathon pace, below marathon pace. Um, with my 1,500-meter background, like, I really do need like a 8-15-5 style workout in the middle sometimes. So, yeah, they're shorter, but like, kind of like the comparison between the 5 and the marathon, like, they're really intense. Yep. So what would be an example? Um... Eight by, one of my favorite ones this time was eight by a mile on the indoor track with 130 rest. In the middle of a long run or this no, was a that was just workout? No, that was a Got Monday it. night at York University. Okay, yeah. nice. And then sort of for a long run, um, so actually the one I was supposed to do and never did uh, was 16K uh, based on your stuff because I won't speak in kilometers, I'll speak in miles. 10 miles. So, uh, so 10 miles at... Uh, sort of plus 15, plus 30, uh, above marathon goal pace. And then like 13 miles at marathon pace and really trying to get the last sort of three miles down below marathon goal pace. So longer build up and then a long session at MGP. Yeah. Nice. Or not, but fun. (laughs) We do some similar things here, which is always good to hear that. 
that validation. Do you enjoy those long workouts as a 1,500-meter runner, or is it really, really hard? So I don't like working out alone. So if they're alone, I don't enjoy them at all. I mean, running's a lot of my social time. But uh, Alex Hutchison has this awesome group Saturday morning, and I'd often get to do that last three miles to six miles, um, depending on what they were doing with them. And the group of guys would just get around me and, like, pull me through. And they were having fun, so I was having fun. So those were awesome. Got to have the community, right? Got to have the community. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Alex actually would set it up. I'd email him and be like, hey, I want to join in. Like, and he'd send emails to everyone and like not include me, um, probably to make me feel not nervous and just arrange everything like magic sauce. We all need friends like that, right? We do. One th- other thing that seems like you do a lot of and Brad supports is really easy running when you're supposed to run easy. <laughs> right easy running <laughs> this is recovery concept we've been we've been doing some easy runs together the last few days with you here in austin and i'd say i'm not a one-stepper you're not a one-stepper <laughs> casually rolling at i think we did a, a run on tuesday at 8 30 per mile pace yeah. which i don't know what that works out to per k but you know that's two and a half minutes slower than your marathon pace approximately Perfect. Which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which Comfortable, is awesome. talking, my yeah. legs aren't sore, they feel ready to go for workouts. Yeah. I love it. So let's talk about coaching for a second. You mentioned that you used to coach skiing. Alpine skiing, you know. Alpine skiing. Not the, not the Nordic kind. I don't know what that really means. Because I'm not, I mean, I've skied, but, you know, we live here in Austin and there's no So you go up nearby. a chairlift as opposed to getting <laughs> okay, yourself so up the going, hill on your own. So you're going up a chairlift, you're skiing down. <laughs> yeah. So what similarities would you draw between coaching a skier and coaching a runner? Learn the individual. So um, I decided that I wanted to coach young kids. And often young kids in particular, we put them in a bucket and they're all the same and we'll coach them all the same way. And, and we can't do that. And I didn't do that. Um, and I formed a great relationship with the young kids early on. And it was all about treating them as individuals and recognizing their strengths and their weaknesses and what made them tick. And a lot of those kids were forced out there and they did not want to ski. But they went home smiling almost every single day. You just, you have to know the individual. But they're still working in a group, right? So totally. how does So how does that work? How does the group, how does the individual understanding play within a group context? So, I mean, like I had one kid who really wanted a pink ski suit. And so we talked about her optimal pink ski suit often and distracted her. And I was like, okay, so at the bottom of the hill, you know, after you've pole planted every turn, right, thinking about your pink arm going out in front of you, um, you set, you know, you set up skills sessions. It's all, you know, it's like a track workout where you're doing 400s. And so not everybody's going to run at the same pace, um, but everybody comes out to do the same thing together. Yep. Um, and you work as a team. And it, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what have been or what is one of the more challenging individual personality things you've had to deal with as a coach skiing in, another, in an athlete that you're working with? So I've worked with lots of athletes with ADD and ADHD. Um, and a lot of the time they feel really excluded because they get yelled at a lot for having an mm. attention disorder. Um, and when you treat them with love and empathy, just the drastic change that you have from those athletes, and they then actually 
kind of radiate love and empathy to everybody else. And it just makes for such a wonderful team environment. But if you lose them, the toxicity and the lack of attention from everybody is incredible. How do you show love and empathy? Oh, with Toby, it was. So Toby's parents decided not to put him on medication, which I absolutely respected. Um, and then they asked that this big thing in alpine skiing, kids love to eat candy. And they said, Toby can't eat candy because the corn syrup makes him go cuckoo, Crazy. bananas. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, great, no problem. I was like, I'm going to announce that there's a no candy rule. And without saying that I had done this for him, but looking him in the eye to say, you know, I understand how challenging this is for you. And often you feel singled out. Now you're just part of the team. He instantly knew that I respected him. I mean, I definitely got pushed back. The funniest was I got pushed back from a parent. Um, but I got pushed back from the kids. But, you know, like within a week, they all adapted. Yeah. I think it's about a lot of times just meeting people where they are. Yeah. In whatever form. Yeah. Well, maybe one, recognizing that wherever they are is okay and is a place that can be loved and shown empathy to and then and then just meeting them there. Yep. I think also respecting um, both as athletes and coaches, whatever the athlete sex sets as their definition of success, that yes, it's our job to challenge them, but it's also our job to respect that. And then, have the, and then help them get there. Yeah. Right? That's the real magic. Yeah. Th- that balance, though, of pushing and letting them guide can be tricky, though, as a coach, right? Oh, my gosh. It's so challenging. How do you know when to back off on someone? I think actually um, it's not by their words, but what their body tells you, right? I think, you know, one of the things that's so special with coaching when you're working with athletes is watching what they're doing. And you really know to pull someone, you'll see it in their stride. You'll see it in the turns they're making. And um, I mean, I never sent kids home because our programs are super short and weekends only. And you're not really going to injure a, you know, a seven-year-old. Um, but in running, it's really important to watch physically what's happening with someone. Yeah. In some ways, for me, it's about looking for permission, sometimes asking for permission yeah. to push, but sometimes just looking for permission. Yeah. You, know, you, you push a little bit, you see how they respond, and if they eat that up or respond positively, then you, then you maybe try a little more. Right. And if they don't, then you back off. Right. But you have to have permission. Yeah. In one form or another. You talk about also in your your tenets on your website, making choices, not sacrifices. I think that's a really powerful framing of the quote unquote sacrifices we make to excel (laughs) in this sport. Yeah. Because whether you're elite or whether you're an everyday athlete trying to run that first marathon or just get a Boston qualifier, it's easy to tell us to to tell the story that we have to do x and y and z and all of those things are taken away from other stuff we want to be doing which is a very negative way to spin a pursuit towards a goal right. but if you position it like you're saying as choices not sacrifices that's a really powerful framing where did you come up with that how did you get to that place oh it's quite tragic actually um about seven years ago two of my friends passed away within about two months of each other. One of them got viral myocarditis mm. um, and another one, uh, is Nick Nazorichek, he fell at an international ski cross competition and the, the netting wasn't quite right and the way he slid, he broke his neck and he died instantly. Mm. And I just thought, you know, 
they didn't get to live the lives that they probably wanted. And I have this opportunity to do this. And so I'm going to shift my mindset and just be really positive no matter what, because I get to live every day. How does that play out for you every day? So they ha- so in the flow pod, right? I don't know about you, but like you're in a dark room, <laughs> right? And some really negative thoughts can creep in. And so when those negative thoughts creep in, not rejecting them, but accepting them and saying, okay, I hear you. I'm listening. How can we spin this to make it positive? And so this is a dark, scary room because we talked about that it's like, I'm claustrophobic, you're claustrophobic, which is why we thought it was funny to go together. Right. Um, but th- close your eyes and think that you're lying outside in the grass and you're in a big open space. Make the choice to feel that this is bigger. I didn't go there. Okay. <laughs> to the grassy place. <laughs> but I did spin it positively. <laughs> you know, to me it was, it was, it was a thought process of, one, this is very bizarre, <laughs> but two, yes. I have the opportunity to to try this. Right. And I'm going to take full advantage of that opportunity <laughs> because I have the resources to pay to go do this thing, right. which a lot of people don't have the time or resources to do. So I'm going to give it my best shot, whatever <laughs> that means. And it wasn't the really carefully planned gratitude practice that you had but I still feel like I got the most of my experience in the mindset I was in right and I think you know that happens in everyday life you know like you're sitting at your desk and you get some awful project or some awful email that comes across and you can react with anger and frustration or you can take a pause figure out why it's frustrating you and work through that and and figure out how to get through something that seems awful but make it enjoyable i think one of the best examples is weather (laughs) living and for running sake (laughs) you know here this week has been super cold i don't have enough clothes (laughs) sub-zero for the canadians and in the 20s for the americans listening and if you think about it it's pretty miserable to run when it's sub-zero it's not bad come on canada it's sub-zero often But really, as you say, it's really not that bad. In uh, in our world, it's really actually more miserable to run in the summer when it's eighty five degrees and ninety five percent humidity. Oh, I love that. And a lot of people complain about that, and then they can p- turn around and complain when it's too cold. Right. And for me, sure, sometimes I get I'll engage in that banter, but it's also I you're choosing to do this. Right. So why frame it that way? For me. I like summer running because I don't have to think about my wardrobe. <laughs> you don't have to think about throwing your t-shirt in the garbage. It's true. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Shirtless all the way. But so there's a positive spin you can always put on weather. Right. And by the way, I've never regretted a run. I don't think ever. I don't think I could point to a time when I regretted going out for a run, regardless of how miserable the conditions were. Right. So we get to do this. Yeah, we, it's amazing. We get we to choose. Do, get to go on to an adventure it. every day. We choose to sleep. We choose to foam roll. I also think it extends to not just a framing idea, but also this idea that you're in control. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I think, and I fall into this trap where I say, "Oh, my eating's really shitty." 
because I didn't have good food available or I ate this because it was there and I didn't plan or whatever. And so I, now I feel bad about myself and had a bad run because I ate something, whatever. Well, guess what? I have control all, all, over all of those variables. So I get to, I get to control the choices I make, what I'm wearing, what I'm eating. And sometimes we play victim, I think, to yeah. circumstance which can disrupt performance, which can make you have a shitty race. And so I think that's a part of it too. It's just, it's not just the mindset. It's also this idea that you're in control. Well, and also letting go of the things you can't control. Like we can't control the weather. If we could, we'd be multimillionaires and not talking here. Um, We'd (laughs) be talking about something else. But, you know, those things that you can't control, getting frustrated and angry over them does, does you no good and does nothing for you. But you know, learning to work within the circumstances and working with the things that you can control, like that really was one of the things that helped me shift my mindset. Let's talk about your thesis. We, yeah. Let's, let's nerd out for a second. So yeah. you're pursuing a thesis or a PhD. Yeah, a in, doctorate. In engineering. Yes. Performance engineering, I think is what you're calling it. Technically, it's housed in the civil engineering department. So someone... Okay. Yeah. So PhD in civil engineering. Yeah. Your thesis has something to do with the way you teach math to engineers. Correct. So give the layman's Cliff Notes version of what you're actually doing your thesis on really quickly. So I was looking at how important mathematics is to engineering, how good we think students are, and can we change... Do we need to change how we teach mathematics to engineers? And the hypothesis is, yes, you need to change. Why? So the way we teach, and probably this is true for most um, programs outside of engineering, is we lecture. So we've been lecturing students uh, the same way for the last 50 years. But we know that the way we, the way we learn, we know that people learn in different ways. Um, and the way we do things is very different now, yet we still do the same things the way we used to. And so I wanted, I really wanted to at first bring coaching principles to the engineering classroom. Um, But that didn't fly so well because people asked, well, really, is there anything wrong with what we're doing? And so I stepped back to say, okay, let's ask those that are teaching students other engineering courses if there is something wrong with what we were doing. And the answer was yes. The way that we're teaching students engineering, um, uh, sorry, teaching mathematics within engineering just isn't working. And those instructors have offered suggestions as to how we can fix it. How can we fix it? I mean, the big one's motivation and metacognition. So I get my wish, and it is about coaching principles. <laughs> and metacognition. Comes back to coaching. Comes back to coaching. And metacognition, which I never thought of as a coach, is learning how to learn. So understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are, um, I mean, on the educational side, and how you learn and how you acquire a skill. But, you know, in sport, I think it's so important. Like, if you want to get good at anything, you need to know your body and what it can do and what it can't do. And what it can't do, you really got to get working on. Although, don't some people say you should amplify your strengths and not worry about your weaknesses? Sure. I'm sure there's research on both sides. But, I mean, I think you need to play to your strengths, and I think you also do need to work on your weaknesses. If you want to be the best of the best, yeah. Yeah. So, what do you take from that and apply in your running world? Oh, I've read a lot about psychology. So, the big thing that I took away is that in engineering in particular, with a heavy course load, is we don't give students the time to reflect and the time to critically think. And so into my running, that reflection time, I think maybe that's really where the recovery was important. So reflecting upon 
when I did a run or a workout, how I really felt. And so am I ready to go for the next workout? Do I need another day? Do I feel recovered after that recovery run? Am I having any aches and pains or is anything going on? And how is my brain doing? You're talking about with you're talking about tuning into how you feel. Totally. It's funny that we dismiss that in our world. Not maybe not funny, it's just a reality that we do because we're we're always to the next thing. Right? Yeah. Just the next thing on the schedule, the next email to send, the next Facebook post to write, the next Instagram to like. And because of all that stimulus, we lose track of the most important stimuli, which is what our body's telling us. Mm-hmm. And I think we also, similar to what we were talking about earlier, feel guilty taking a moment to reflect on it as well, if we're wasting time. Yeah, that's that notion of wasting time. Again, it comes back. Yeah, and, uh, you know, reframing that, you know, kind of like sacrifices that you're not wasting time and that it actually might be your most productive time really changes your interaction with that. It's funny when I, an athlete is injured and maybe they're showing up to a workout to see what they can do and they always want me to tell them, what should I do today? Right. In the context of what the group is doing. Right. And the answer is, I don't know. Yeah, because <laughs> you can't get in their let's head. Try, let's try one thing. Yeah. Let's do one repeat. Right. And then let's talk again. And yeah. And then maybe do two repeats or maybe adjust the pace or maybe... But guess what? We're going to figure it out as we go based on how your body responds at each point, right? Because we can't know. We can't know now before we start. They get really uncomfortable about that approach. Totally. No, it's because it's not the approach that one everybody else is doing, but it's also this idea of uncertainty, right? right? We all get really uncomfortable with the idea of uncertainty. And so if you say to someone, I don't know what you're doing today, you've just handed them a pile of uncertainty. <laughs> of course, they're going to be uncomfortable. But if you say to them, you're going to feel uncomfortable because we don't know what you're doing. You sort of talk then about the pink elephant in the room and it actually right. makes it better. Right. And it also opens up the possibility, in my mind, that you could do more than you thought. Right. right. Because if I said, hey, look, you've got this little tweak. We're going to do four repeats instead of eight like the rest of the group is doing. Make that decision now. Live with it no matter what happens. But what if you get through four and you feel good? Right. And you could have actually done eight. Or if you just slowed down and reacted to how you were feeling in the real, in the, in the moment, you could actually get through more because of it. So it's so important to listen to your body, but we don't want to. I also think it's really important to celebrate when somebody says, I can't do this because I'm hurting. Because um, that's okay too. It's more than sure. okay. I actually think... It takes so much courage to say that in an environment right now where we don't celebrate. We would say that's weakness. But to me, that's courage. But it can be hard, though, to know that difference between I can't do this because I'm hurting and I shouldn't. It'll make it worse. And I'm hurting a little bit, but I should try. I think there's I think one of the things that really helped me was learning to distinguish between orthopedic pain and discomfort. Right. So. You know, am I uncomfortable because I'm just working hard or am I injured? And I think that's one thing. And then I think, you know, if you are working through an injury, there's lots of people who have written about this sort of the like single leg hopping test or like the pain threshold. And if you can keep your pain under a three, yeah, keep going. But if your pain's getting worse, just stop. But don't be afraid to stop. Like celebrate to yourself that you're aware of your body. 
and that you're doing the best thing for you. I was reading recently about mindful eating. I mindfully eat cookies. Which is something I need (laughs) (laughs) because if you put it in front of me, I'll typically eat it. Same. But slowing down while I'm eating and not necessarily reflecting after each bite of food how I'm feeling, but just giving myself pauses and trying to listen to how I'm feeling as I eat is something I'm not good at, but I'm trying to work on because I think it'll help me ultimately make the best food choices. And relatedly, I think it's something that we need to do in running in a workout, in a recovery uh, you know, session. Like, hey, I'm in the middle of a massage. This is something I struggle with as an introvert is actually communicating to my massage therapist. <laughs> but I have those thoughts as they're working through the different body parts where I say, I think, oh, you pressed there. That did something to the area of discomfort. Right. I should probably say that so that then they know and can react accordingly. But I don't most often because I'm. Not, well, if they're good I'm enough, not, they'll I'm know. Commu- yeah, I'm not communicative enough. But it's the same concept. It's like right. this idea of being present, recognizing, hey, we just we just discovered some information. Let's use it in this moment versus just powering through the rest of the 60 minutes and going up, going about my day, hoping that it all worked out. One, not eating your sandwich while you're checking emails, because while that's a great way to multitask, you're not really, you're not one enjoying the food and being mindful and present in what you're doing, but then you're also probably not going to figure out when you're satiated and be aware of when that's happening until the sandwich is done. You're like, oh, I ate too much. I'm full after the fourth piece of pizza. Right. (laughs) Instead of going. You mean the large pizza that I (laughs) ate by myself the other day? Instead of going to six, I should stop now. (laughs) That's where I, (laughs) that's where my threshold comes in. But, but all this stuff sounds good, but it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And it's hard to do. Don't think of trying to do it all at once. I mean, it's then it's a fruitless effort and you're trying to do too much. And, you know, you basically set yourself up to fail. And it's doing small things over a course of time and creating new habits, right? Like Charles Duhigg's book, you know, Cue, Re- Response, Reward. You know, it takes three weeks for a habit to form. Yeah, for me, it's about simplicity. It's Yeah. It's okay. I'm being more mindful in general about these decisions. Sleep is the one that's most important for me. I'm going to try to respond to those sleep cues, not only for naps, but also in the evening when it's time to go to bed. And I'm going to focus on that. Right. And the other stuff I'm going to be aware of. And yeah, I'm going to try to be better about mindful eating, but it's not a focus. It's something I'm going to be aware of. And I'm not going to beat myself up if I have six pieces of pizza. Or barbecue. (laughs) Or the two pounds of barbecue. Right. <laughs> so pick the one thing right. that you could be more mindful of, more conscious of. And it could be, for some, about workout awareness. My last podcast, or one of my most recent episodes, was on workout management. Okay. And this idea of just being aware in a workout so that you can make good decisions about what to do next, whether you finish the workout or not finish the workout when it's going poorly, whether you pick the pace up or not I actually given think certain parameters the first step with that with athletes and one of the things I had to learn was stop thinking about other stuff in an interval 
all you should be thinking about in that interval is that interval. How you feel in that interval. How you feel in that interval. Truth. If we could all be that mindful. But if you can, if you can start there, right? If you're, you know, even one lap of an interval. So it's a thousand on a track. If for 400 meters, you're just focusing on the person in front of you, or if you're leading, making sure that you're maintaining pace, baby steps. Um, I think you get so much more out of that workout when you can stop thinking about the other stuff. Part of it means maybe covering your watch too. That's something we talked about is not being so obsessed with your Garmin that you can't feel what's happening to you in the workout. Well, just remember your legs can't see what the time says. So as long as they think they're working hard, they're probably working hard. That was Kate's line. Kate Barrett, she said, your watch isn't going to run the race for you. That's a Jonathan Marcus line. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. So stolen from a few others. Yeah. But I like that. Yeah. Because it's true. So let's switch gears and talk about your sponsor. One of your big sponsors, Wazel. I love them. One of your tenants on your website is be an ambassador mm-hmm. for the sport. And I feel like Wazel supports athletes to be ambassadors of the sport and also tries to build ambassadors outside of the sport in the volley team that extends to a big community of women across the country. How did your relationship start with Wazelle? What's it been like a part of their team? <laughs> so I started out as a fangirl <laughs> and I totally were you a fangirl of Sally or, or of a particular athlete of, a, of Kate Grace. <laughs> okay. You and me both. Okay. I was a fanboy. I had her recently on the podcast and I told her that because I was pretty deep on her career well before she became a a Bowerman babe and it was a little bit uncomfortable, (laughs) but we worked through it. (laughs) So you were a fangirl of Kate Grace. Yeah. And I had seen Lauren Wallace race and I was a fangirl on her too. And I was like, wow, they're wearing really beautiful kits. I want to wear a really beautiful kit. And so I Googled Wazelle and... Uh, up popped their website and if you went to team and you scrolled down on the right it said um, if you're interested in joining the team send us an email so I sent them an email I put together what I thought was the greatest cover letter I've ever (laughs) written and I sent it off and I got an email that was like hey we're not really putting together a team until um, our contracts end August 31st till September Um, why don't you reach out to us again then and a week later they're like nope just kidding no (laughs) we'd really love to have you um, it worked. It worked. Um, I just saw this brand that it wasn't just about the clothes and it wasn't just about the running. It was really about the community. And, you know, in the last five, four or five years running with them, my community of women that I have met through the Wazelle uh, Volet has just been incredible. It's been life changing for me. And it's not just elites. It's also no. everyday athletes that are just getting it done. So I actually... It, like, I know some of the hot volley, but I know a lot of the volley way better. I mean, there's this portal that we all are part of. And the second I'm coming to a new city, like, I post on the portal, like, I'm coming. I can't wait to meet all of you. I want to go running. Tell me all the things. Which is how you got connected to us. Totally. Because you're rooming with Kate Barrett, who is a member of the hot volley now. Yeah. And so you're hanging out with her. So you got that resource through the volley. I'm a huge fan of Sally. And of How can you not Sarah Lesko <laughs> in terms of what they're doing for our sport. Yep. Because they're a brand that's approaching it differently than the Nikes of the world. And certainly Nike, I think, 
should get some credit for what they're doing for our sport as well. But I feel like the brands like Wazelle, and now it's starting to bleed into other brands like New Balance, they're telling stories, yeah. first of all, which is hugely critical for our for the fans in our sport. They're also advocating for change where it needs to happen from contracts to USATF bullshit rules to <laughs> to how women are treated and talked about in the sport. And that's just so important. And it's it's not done enough. And so to have this little brand from Seattle stand up and say, hey, we're not that big. We don't have the same resources that Nike does. And I don't know what the scale of business is, but it's, you know, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what totally. Nike does. But but they stand up and they make that little voice as loud as it can be. And it's making a difference and it's inspiring not only to see that, but also just to feel like you want to be a part of it. I think that, you know, one of the big differences is that um, it's not just about the elites. I mean, like even the the big New Balances and the Nikes and everything, like their story is very much about the elite athletes, like not just in running, but the other ones. And for Wazelle, it's not just the story about the elites. That's part of it. But the bigger story and probably the more important story is everybody else and why they get out of bed every day to go for a run when they've got to sit at a nine to five job or they've got to stand on their feet, you know, as a nurse, as a doctor, as a paramedic, you know, as our frontline staff, like that's the story that really matters. And I think they've done an incredible job at telling that story and getting that story out there. I love that you connect with the volet. What have you, what have you learned about the similarities of you who's trying to train for an Olympic team <laughs> And that person who's just trying to train for their first marathon. <laughs> well, I mean, it comes from biking, but they say, like, it doesn't get easier. You just get faster, <laughs> right? Like, we all share in the discomfort when you go out and do hard workouts. Um, I think it's funny when some of the other women say, oh, I can't run with you because I don't run like you do. And I'm like, you don't put the left foot in front of the right <laughs> foot. Like, how are you doing it differently that I need to know? <laughs> right. And is it more fun the way you're doing it? And they're like, no, I just don't run as fast as you. I was like, yeah, at a race, you don't run as fast as me. But like on an off day, I'd rather run with you and have a great time than go for a run by myself. Yeah. What have they taught you? Uh, community. I mean, I, I'm an introvert too. I like to hole up in my office and write and research and be alone um but that reaching out and reaching out to meet new people and hear other people's stories makes your life better cheers to that now as we wrap our time here tell people how they can be a fan of sasha golish and why they should be a fan if they haven't already figured it out so I think I represent the story that's a bit different. You know, like, I think like everybody else, I used to go do the nine to five job. Well, sometimes I had to work through the night on the highway. That was not so fun to, for a run at 7 a.m. the next day. <laughs> but, you know, not that I'm just relatable, but, you know, that if you want to go take a big risk in your life, that you should try it. Because the worst that happens is you can go back to the way that things were before. And the adventure that might happen is so worth the risk. Hell yeah. <laughs> so you're training for Tokyo. I'm training for Tokyo. Tokyo marathon being the goal. 
maybe the 10,000 because we know how I feel about okay, marathons. Fair enough. Okay. Even though you haven't raced the 10,000 on the track. No, it's true. I've paced Shalane and I really had an epic time doing that. I was like, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not aspiring to be a 10K pacer. No. No. Now, but the rules are a little bit different in Canada. So explain to people <laughs> how you make an Olympic team in Canada. Sure, the rules change every single four-year cycle. So I can take you through the most recent one. Sure. <laughs> so we don't have a trials. I mean, we can't run a marathon in Canada in February <laughs> without a few feet of snow. Right. Uh, there's also no races really happening at that time uh, up in Canada. And it just wouldn't be fair to ask people to come to trials somewhere else. So uh, for the first time, actually, uh, for the 2020 Games, for the marathon, uh, they are doing a spot. And it's only one. And it's through... Um, Alan Brooks's um, Canadian Running Series, where you're actually bringing a rogue adventure. Um, and the person who wins that race uh, gets to go to the Olympics if they meet the time, which we know hasn't been released. And we also know that Canada likes to change. Um, and then the next two spots will likely be based solely on time. Uh, the 10,000 in the past has been the top three times, and we actually haven't even been able to field three people based on the Olympic standard. And then 5,000 down works the same way as you guys. So, um, well, similar. Sorry. You have to finish in the top eight at trials and have the time. So you need to run fast. You need to run fast at the end of the day. And or the marathon. And you're looking at Chicago for the fall to try to get another fast marathon. If I choose to run another marathon, it will (laughs) likely be Chicago. I waffle. Today it was like, okay, yes. And then I'll probably do a long run and be like, okay, no. And if you're going to do a 10K coming up, what would that be? You mean 10,000 on the track? On the track. Um, I'd like to get into Peyton Jordan. There's a rumor Mm -hmm. going around that M. Sisson and Molly Huddle are going to run Stanford 1. So I may try and get into that as well. That would be a fast. That would be a fast one. Fast qualifying potential there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sasha, for joining the podcast. Enjoying (laughs) it. Thanks for goading me into the float. (laughs) And, of course, if you want to check Sasha out, I'll link to all these things in the show notes. But you can find her at SashaGolish.com or on Instagram at SGolishRuns. Anywhere else they should check you out? Twitter. Yeah. Same handle? Same handle. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. And enjoy your time in Austin. I'm sure we'll have more runs together. This has been, this has been fun. It's been fun. <laughs> So there you go. That's my interview with Sasha. Hopefully you are now a fan of hers. As I mentioned, go check out her website. Go follow her on Instagram and Twitter. Follow her journey to Tokyo in 2020. Incidentally, I said I would talk about her reactions to the Olympic standards. I think her first reaction once she saw the new standards was, fuck, that's going to be really hard. She's run 232, as I mentioned, in Houston. Now she's got to get under 229.30. That, of course, is complicated by the Canadian process, which isn't clear. It's, It's more subjective than objective in terms of how you make a team. I tried to contend to Sasha that the the more aggressive standards actually benefit her in the context of the Canadian process because now if she can run under that 229.30 standard, then the Federation will have to take her to the Olympics. And so I think in some ways it makes it simpler for her because if she can get under that standard and she's looking at a fall marathon to do that, then then they'll have to take her. And so in some ways it's good, but also 
it's it's going to be tough to get to that 229.30 point, although I think she can do it. So, and if she does it, I think most likely she'll get to go to Tokyo, which will be awesome. So, so there you go. We will now follow along in her journey to 2020. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. This has been episode 118 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check it, check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>